Moses, being a very, very wise teacher here in Deuteronomy, he has reviewed time and time again with them through these first four or five chapters exactly what the Lord has done for them. He's gone over time and time again how the Lord consistently and faithfully showed mercy and great love and, then, and how He specifically redeemed them from Egypt and the Exodus, how He, how he gave them an escape from uh, the captivity to Pharaoh and He parted the Red Sea and, and He has brought them to the cusp of of the promised land that God had told them would be theirs. And, and unfortunately, as we know, the generation believed the ten spies instead of Caleb and Joshua, and they wandered for 38 years. An entire generation of every person 20 years and older died because of their disobedience. And God now has faithfully looked after them. It's been some 40 years since that day. And they're on the, again, they're on the cusp of the promised land. They're about to enter the land that God has promised them, and Moses is preparing them to enter the land. He, he, he goes over, uh, as Barry did last week. Uh, for me, we were in the Dominican on a mission trip, and, and in the coming weeks we will share about that trip. But God reiterates to them, I've not changed the requirements haven't changed. What I'm demanding of you hasn't changed. If you're going to be my people and represent me, it hasn't changed. He laid out the commandments again to them. And now Moses is going to address here. I really, my heart, I wanted to cover chapters 6 through 8, but I, I couldn't do it. So we're going to look at chapters 6 and 7. I, I really could have only stopped in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But I said, no, I'm going to keep it moving. But... Moses is going to command them and talk to them about the need to be careful. If you, if you walked through Deuteronomy, I would challenge you to, to just circle all the times Moses says, be careful or be diligent. He says it time and time again. He says, be careful. Why? Because the tendency is for us to forget. I, I think if you asked all of us, one thing we would say is this, our tendency is to forget how good God has been. Our tendency is to not only forget, our tendency is to be pulled away from simple devotion to the Lord and instead be captivated by the things of this world. Our tendency is for, our, for to be pulled away from, from a love, a pure, undefiled love for the Lord and instead fall in love with the things of the world. Our tendency is to be pulled away from the reminder that it is God who has done this in us, through us, and for us, and instead we believe that we've done it. Look what I've done. I deserve the praise. And no, no, it's God who deserves the praise. It's God who deserves the glory. And that's what Moses is, is telling them here. And it's outlined by this, and what he will show us, and what we will see today is, the problem is this, I don't always know what's in my heart. And the issue is always my heart. I don't know what my motives are all the time, I don't know what I want in my heart, I don't, and Moses is saying, look, it starts in the heart. 
Everything that you do, everything you commit to the Lord, everything and you follow the Lord, everything you do in the name of the Lord has to flow from the heart. This issue is the heart. And why? Because if we're not careful, we will be pulled away. If we're not careful, we will chase after things that don't last. We will chase after things that don't fill. We will chase after things that don't give glory to the Lord. We'll chase after all those things. All the while, God right there is waiting and has made Himself available for an intimate relationship. And we pass on Him and we chase after instead things that don't last. And we begin to think more of ourselves than we ought. That is what we will see beginning today in chapters 6 and 7. It has a great relevance for today, and I'm going to try to link that. It has a great application for today. And so, so in honor of our time, let's jump in. And what we'll see here in the first verse 9, I mean, first 9 verses, I'm sorry, of chapter 6 is this first point on your handout. By the way, if, if, you, if you're here today visiting, uh, we have binders there in the foyer. Make sure you grab a binder to keep these notes in. That's why they're three-hole punched. If you need a binder, um, there's some in the foyer. There's some, some in a box up here. Make sure you get a binder. Just, and it's not, and again, it's not for, not for me, it's for you to keep these notes. Maybe one day, if I do a good job, you can go back and, and study Deuteronomy on your own. But make sure, make sure you get a binder to put these notes in and to, and to keep them. But verses 1 through 9, this is what God is saying. I'm trying to summarize this to keep it moving. There, there's a lot here that we could... You could do an entire series on the family right here in chapter 9. But what he says in verses 1 through 9 is this. God demands that our, that our, that our obedience to Him be motivated by love. That our obedience be motivated by love. Why? Because of the great mercy and grace... That he has shown to us. It's motivated by love. We will, you will see if you study the history of Israel. That's one of the ways they went way wrong. They took these things and they were motivated to obey. They were motivated to follow. They were motivated by a lot of things. Not love for the Lord. Motivated by love. And really this section begins in verse 32 of chapter 5. Moses says, so you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Moses is calling Israel to a life of obedience. And Moses compares God's commandments to a road map. He commands them to a, to a path. I'm sure, I'm sure nowadays, I mean, you, you go to buy a car and, and they want to sell you the navigation system and all that. And we have navigation systems on our phones. And why anyone gets lost today, I, I don't know. Because you've got so many opportunities. It still happens. I've been there. And uh, we rely heavily on these, these maps. And, and, and I'm sure some of you have, when you're following that map, you, you'll miss a turn. And what does it say? It says recalculating. Recalculating. If, if, if God were to show my life in, in that form, there's no telling how many times we would have had to say recalculating. Recalculating. If we did that for Israel, we would have years and years of recalculating. Recalculating. And Moses is saying, do not turn to the right or to the left. This is a road map. 
Don't turn aside. God, God's commands are a path that leads you to the desired destination. It's life and life abundantly. That's what the Word provides. It's a map. It's to be followed. God's commands are revealing His heart for us, and He wants, he wants joy, He wants life, but we've got to follow Him. And in Psalm 119, 105, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's exactly what Moses is saying here. Foundationally, this is huge. Why? It answers the question, why did God give the law and, and, and what it does for us if we follow it? Why did God give the law and what does it accomplish if we follow it and trust it rightly. Right there, he says, I gave it to you because it's a lamp to your feet. It's a light to your path. It's to guide you. And our attitude towards God's law are, affects us greatly. Just like if you looked at that phone and said, I don't believe that. I've been, you're wrong. I, I, I told y'all, Karen, a while back, I shared this, but I'm, I'm reminded we were in Boston outside of Boston, and, and, and we had heard about this little old mom-and-pop restaurant, and we dialed in the directions, and we went. We must have circled for 20 minutes, and the phone was saying, You're, the phone literally was showing my car in the restaurant. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing. And, and we missed it. The, the map was saying it was there, but guess what? It, it wasn't, the problem was this. It wasn't named what it was named, and it wasn't where it was supposed to be. We followed it. We followed just what it said. We literally were circling, asking people, or they were saying, oh, it's right over there. We couldn't find it. And God is saying, look, you're going to search for life in all these different ways, but you're not going to find it unless you trust me. See, our, what, it, the, the funny thing it was is we could not find it. In reality, eventually we did find it, and it was exactly where the map was telling us it was, it just didn't look like what we thought a restaurant would look like. That right there told me all I needed to know about it. Although some of the best food is in those places where you think, I guarantee you they didn't pass the dirty dining test, but it's good food. See, it didn't look like what we thought it should look like. It wasn't where we thought it should be. Ultimately, it wasn't even open that day. It was everything went wrong on this voyage. But we had to trust it. And see, that's what God is saying. Sometimes we, we look at that also with God's Word. It doesn't say what we think it should say. It doesn't lead us where we think it should lead us. It doesn't look like what we think it should look like. It's not producing the results that we think it should produce. And our attitude towards God, God's Word affects how we follow it. And the point that Moses makes over and over and over again in Deuteronomy and that he reinforces over and over is this. We must trust God that His Word is for our good and we must follow it the right motives. We've got to trust God that His Word is for our good. And we have to follow it with right motives. With right motives. And that's what Moses is getting to today. We have to follow it but with right motives. Motives. God is not pleased with a people that follow with wrong motives. Not at all pleased with that. God gave Israel the law for their good so that they could represent Him accurately, but also so they could function as a people. 
It was so they could represent him, but they could also function as a people. They needed laws and rules to govern their behavior. But it was for their own good. L- last Sunday, I was, I was watching um, professional football, and this show was advertised. And uh, it just intrigued me because of where we are in Deuteronomy. And, and, and I will... I, I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it was the very, it was the, it was the season. It was the very first show. They had just started this, and they basically took 14 people, they brought them to this this land, they gave them no rules, no nothing. They got to do whatever they wanted to. They got to make up all their. They got to do everything from scratch. It was the, the show was called Utopia. I, don't watch it. I watched about 12 minutes of it and had to turn it off. I, I knew all I needed to know. I watched it only because of this. I wanted to see. See, the thing that the network didn't take into effect is sin. You can take 14 people, you can take away all the rules, you can take away everything, you can form their own society, but guess all 14 of them brought sin in. And within about one minute, they were fighting like cats and dogs. The point they came up with very quick is we need rules. We need to establish rules. No rules is chaos. And it reminded me exactly of what God did for His people. The rules were for good. The, the, the rules were so they could represent him well, but also so they could function as a society. And, and we have to believe, we have to believe that God gives us his word with regulations and with guides out of a love for us. Why do we have this word? Because he loves us. Because he wants to protect us. He wants to guide us and get us to the desired location, if you will, which is godliness, sanctification, so that we represent him well. I don't, you know, God, as a parent, I, I try, we try to regulate our children. Why out of love? Why don't I want them to do certain things? Because it'll kill them. Why don't I want them to do that? Because it will harm them. Same thing with God. Why doesn't he want you, why does he want you to be loyal to one spouse and not unloyal? Why? Because it will harm you. It will devastate you. Why does he want you not to steal? Because it harms you. Not to take his name and all those things. Number one, it represents him. But number two, it's for our good. It's for our good. And ultimately, you go to Galatians 3.24. Paul says the law was a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God is giving them a, a tutor, a tutorial, a map to lead to Christ. To lead to Christ. Tutors are good. Tutors are helpful. All of us, at some point, we need help. God says, look, I'm going to give you a tutor that's going to lead you to Christ. It's the law. But, but not only was it a guide, God also revealed himself in the law. He revealed himself. See, in, in, this, in this law, God was showing them about his character. He was showing them, he was revealing himself about his nature. We do the same thing. The rules we make, the things we do with our kids, guess what? We're revealing what's important to us. We're revealing our character. God was revealing himself. The law was meant to draw Israel closer to God. And and if Israel was to be a holy people, if they were going to represent their holy king, They needed a law that would show them what it was required of them in order to be holy. And that is exactly what God gave them. He gave them exactly what they needed. 
He said, look, if you're going to be my people, you're going to represent me, I'm holy. This is how you be holy. This is how you represent You take that all the way back to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. We were to be representative rulers on behalf of God. We bear His image. And, and He's saying, look, if you're going to represent me, here it is. When, when, when we think of the law, if we're honest, we think negative. Why? Because that's how God, that's how man has perverted God's laws. In our sinful nature, we rebel. We've seen that all the way back to Genesis 3. We want to determine for ourselves what is good and what is, what is wise instead of simply trusting God. And that is traced all the way back to where Adam and Eve, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no longer did they simply just trust what God says. They said, no, 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 I'm going to determine for myself what's good and what's evil? So when we look at God's law, you know what? We want to determine for ourselves. No, 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 no. I know, I know what you say about these things, but I'm going to... This is 2014. We'll determine for ourselves. Not only that, man added. They took the law and they added their own interpretation of the law. They added things to the law. But, but Israel didn't originally... Hear me. They didn't originally see the law as bad. They knew, they knew the law was good. See, man perverted it. You, you go to Psalm 119, and I, I would challenge you to go read Psalm 119. It's a long one, so I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to show you. In verses 103, the psalmist says that the law is sweet like honey. Sweet like honey. In verse 105, he says the law is light. In verses 14, in verses 72, in verses 127, in verses 162, he says it's a treasure. It's a treasure. It's valuable. In verse 45, he says the law is freedom. You go all the way to John 8, you see the same thing. You shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you freedom. Freedom. Our kids, hey, you follow the rules of the house, you do whatever you want within the rules of the house. You're totally free to do whatever you want to do within the rules of the house. Freedom. You give clear, designed rules, that's where freedom lies. Why? Because the kids know, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. I don't have to wonder. There's freedom. There's freedom there. You look at verse 14 of Psalm 119, it says the law was a source of great joy. That's how they viewed the law. They delighted in it. You look at Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16. They delighted and meditated on the law. That's exactly what Psalm 1 says as well. How blessed is the man who does not do this, but who meditate, who delights in the law and meditates in it. Verse 3, day and night. But not only in verses 15 and 16, they say that in verses 23 and 24, verses 47 and 48, verses 77 and 78. What's the point? Delight in the law. It's for your good. The psalmist is reminding them, the law is for your good. Bottom line, verses 10 and 11, they treasured it in their heart. Psalm 119 says they treasured it. They treasured it in their heart. And that's the key point, their heart. This wasn't some mere external thing that they sat on their coffee table and they put in a prominent place, but they never opened. They treasured it in their heart heart that that's why they obeyed the word because it was good they, they saw it as a gift that that grace 
of God had been revealed, had been offered. They treasured it. But, but it went way beyond mere externals. And that's where verse 2 and 3 kick in of Deuteronomy. So that you and your son and grandson might fear the Lord to keep His statutes and the commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may weigh well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Just as the Lord, your God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Goes back to the point, point, God is faithful. Just as Daniel sang this morning, goes back to the promises of God. They went back there. They said, you're faithful. And, and the commitment, the commitment to his word was motivated by what he had done for them. It was responding to grace. They were responding to grace. It, it was also a reverent fear. It was an awe. God didn't have to choose Israel. You see that in chapter 7. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number, verse 7, than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty name and redeemed you. They knew that. We had no business being chosen, and yet God chose us. They responded to that grace. I had no business having Jesus Christ die for the forgiveness of my sins to pay the sin debt that I deserve to pay. And yet God put His Son on that cross to pay for the sins of the world that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Grace. Moses again and again says, Be careful. Be careful. In verse 3, he reminds you, It's for your good that you'll multiply greatly, that, you'll, that it'll go well with you. This is for your good. What Moses is calling us to and calling Israel to is a covenant love relationship. It's a covenant love relationship. And it's, it was motivated by a heart for God. Obedience, listen, obedience was always meant to be from the heart. Always meant to be from the heart. Undeniable message of the Old Testament. Obedience is from the heart. Look at a few passages just to, to make this clear. I think the guys have them. 1 Kings 8, 23. And, 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 and there's, you'll see them there on your handout. 1 Kings 8, 23. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you, what? With all their heart. With all their heart. Look at 2 Chronicles 6, 14. He said, the Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk, what? Before you with all their heart. You go on and on again, it's the same thing. They were responding to grace. And they loved Him. And sometimes we can fall in the trap of thinking that in the Old Testament you know, of animals and, and the way, and, and that was the way God was in the Old Testament. And, and, you know, he sacrificed animals and now in the New Testament, something different. No, it was always of the heart. God was always interested with your heart. It's always been about the heart. This, those animal sacrifices were pointing to the fact that, guess what? No animal sacrifice will be sufficient once and for all to pay for the penalty of your sins. I'm going to provide the ram that's in the thicket. I will provide the sacrifice. Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I will provide the ram that will be slaughtered 
for the sins of the whole world, and it was His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where the sacrifices were pointing. And when we, when we separate the Old Testament and the New Testament as if they're completely different, we drive a wedge in between them. And we don't understand the New Testament until we understand the Old Testament. What God was doing in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. It was pointing to Christ. God didn't just up and change. And, no, no, no. Granted, he, he dispelled grace and we live by grace and we're not under law. Praise the Lord. But why? Because Christ fulfilled it. It wasn't that the law was bad. It wasn't that God messed up and, and said, you know what, that, that law stuff wasn't a very good idea. I probably need to change that. No, his son fulfilled the law. And by faith, he credits that to you and to I. Or to me, I guess would be proper grammar there. Irregardless. <laughs> verses four, look at verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you see it? That, that is the equivalent, that is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, and they may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying the Lord is one and He is worthy of our all. There's one God. There's a lot of things out there that purport to be gods. You can go to Galatians and Paul says, you know, they're not really gods at all. They're false. The Lord is one. God always has, always will, demanded our all. Why? Because He's worthy. And because He gave His all. He gave His all. Why is the standard so high? Because that's how awesome God is. He's worthy of that. And, and He's worthy of that because of His actions, not only who He is in character, because of His actions. And Moses is saying, don't forget the grace. Don't forget God's grace. God demands and is worthy of exclusive devotion to him. That's what Moses is saying. He's, he's worthy, but not only is he worthy, he demands exclusive worship. We'll not settle for less. And that's what they, in a, a Jewish boy would have known this very early on. He would have recited these verses early on. He would have known them because it was their declaration to undivided, unqualified devotion to the Lord. Why? Because they knew he was worthy. And this was so much more than a confession. Please, please don't. This was not something that they just regurgitated. Yeah, look, I, I've been in Awana on Wednesday nights, and, and I deal with it sometimes my son and my daughter. Bradley, don't memorize just to get that Awana book. Don't memorize the Word of God just so you can get those green wings. This is not about memorization. This is about allegiance. What they're doing here is they are teaching their children to be their total allegiance was devoted to the Lord. Total allegiance. Not just, let me memorize this to get my dad out of my room so I can play with my Legos. This is about allegiance. They are pronouncing their loyalty. They are identifying themselves completely with the Lord. And it's interesting, the word love here in verse 5 refers to a covenant commitment demonstrated by actions that seek the well-being and pleasure of another. That's the kind of love God showed, and that's the kind of love He demanded. 
A love that understands grace and responds by seeking the well-being of others. Namely, we seek the well-being and the praise and the glory of the one who saved us. You, you look through the Old Testament, you will, you will never see people bragging about how much they love the Lord. Why? Because they knew what that really was saying. They knew what that allegiance looked like. They wanted to. But they knew, look, God has loved me this way. For me. I want to love you, Lord, but, but I also know that I fall short. But I thank you for grace, even though I fall short. I thank you. And, and Moses is, what Moses goes on to do here is he says, look, it, it goes way beyond your just confession. I want you to back up your words with your lives. You back up your confessions with your lives. And he is commanding love God from the heart. And with all your heart. He's saying your love for God and your allegiance to God and your loyalty to God penetrates every single area of your life. That's exactly what Mark said, what Jesus said in Mark 12, 30. What they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said this, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. It always goes back to love. It always starts with the love for God. And this was so much more than a ritual. It was so much more than just a mere confession. It was literally a pledge of allegiance. And it flowed from the heart. These words, verse 6, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Heart. The Old Testament, the New Testament light, God makes it very clear. He's not pleased with ritual. He's not pleased with just sacrificing for sacrifice sake it always flowed from the heart look with me just for instance real quick hosea 6 i think the guys have it hosea 6 verses 4 through 6 what shall i do with you ephraim what shall i do to you judah for your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early therefore i have hewn them in pieces by the prophets i have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight, look at what the Lord says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You go to Isaiah, he says, I'm sick of those things. I'm sick of that stuff. I'm sick of you pretending outwardly to be something that you're not inwardly. Look at Hebrews 10, just so you think that's not an Old Testament thing. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. He wants their heart. In Matthew 15, 8, and 10, 8 through 10, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain. And what he's saying is, and what I want us to notice is the emphasis, where does the teaching about who the Lord is, where does it take place? Where did Moses say is the spot where you're to teach how great God is? The home. The home. He didn't say come to the priest. He didn't say, no, no. He said, don't put, it, it ain't about the schooling or the, or the awana or the, or the church or the, the Sunday school classes or the student ministries or any of those things. 
the primary spot that God himself from very day one designed to be the primary discipleship maker for the church is the home. The home. Devotion and loyalty to the Lord begin and are taught at home. Our children learn it from us. He says, verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk of them when they sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them on a sign of your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He says, your homes ought to be marked with your loyalty to the Lord. Your homes ought to make sure that anyone who passes by, anyone who enters, anyone who comes over for dinner, anyone who stops over, anyone who comes on accident, they understand who your loyalty is to. They come into our homes, he's saying they ought to know that your loyalty, devotion and loyalty to the Lord was a very public matter. And it went beyond just what went in their homes. When they left their home, guess what? It was written all over them too. It was written all over them too. They would have known. Everyone who met them would have been reminded who they represented. When they returned to their home, it reminded this is who you represent. It was on the doorpost. When they left the house, last reminder, you're going out into the world and you represent the Lord. When they came back to the home, guess what? This is not a, just a public thing. You do it in private as well when you're inside your home. I'm reminding you, this is who your loyalty is to. Inside, outside the home, one life. Even what they wore, interestingly enough, even what they wore testified to who they were and whose they were. Even what they wore. They sought to honor God. Moses is saying, you seek to honor God in everything you do. Same message that's in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We've seen time and time again. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Peter 3, ladies, let not your, let not your beauty be merely outwardly, but the inward disposition of a heart. Men, same thing. They said, Moses is saying, you remind, you put, you, you, you be reminded of whose you are. The question comes for us, what does your home say about the Lord? What statement does your home make? Somebody comes into your home, what do they walk away with? They walk away saying, that's a family that has total allegiance to the Lord? Do they walk away with a different message? What kind of spirit does somebody sense when they come into your home? God is in this place or what? Do people know whom you follow? Do they know about your relationship to the Lord by your home and your dress? And it was interesting. We, we spent last week in the Dominican and a couple that went with us is very devout Muslim, phenomenal couple. I had every single day just as God would have it, we got to spend an upwards an hour or more talking with them, answering questions about the Christian faith. You know what the number one hindrance they have is? Some, one of the number one hindrances that they can't get past is how do, you, how do Christians dress the way they dress and call themselves believers? One of the number one hang-ups they have. And again, their, their system is works-oriented, so don't go there. I'm not trying to get a tape measure and da 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 you know, but you know why they, they dress the way they dress? is They do not want to cause another man to stumble. That's why she dresses like she dresses head to toe. Does not want another man to stumble. 
you know, the other hang up, all the things that we say that we do and then the, the, the actions that don't back them up. And they had a laundry list, and I spoke to all those. I mean, again, it's works-oriented versus grace-oriented. But what we do matters. How we dress matters. How we live matters. We're putting roadblocks in play, in, in, in people's place. And, and Moses is saying, you constantly remind yourselves of God's goodness and the fact that He could be known. That was the privilege of Israel. Their God, the one true God, had made Himself known. He had revealed himself. No other God had done that. And Mo Israel knew that loving God and being known by him, they were the highest privilege in all the world. They were constantly reminded of this. Look at, look at uh, I mean, we're not going to look there, but you can look later at Zechariah 419, 14, 9, rather. They, their goal was to make God's name known throughout the world. They knew it was a privilege. But what about us today? How, how does this apply? Let's, let's bring this home real quick. How, how does this apply? And I'm glad you asked the question. I heard you all asking it. The, the idea of loyalty and the idea of creed are not unique to the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles. Don't, don't really on the screens. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. Paul is declaring here, Almost exactly what Moses is declaring. And it's the context, it's in the context of taking care of your liberty, understanding that how we live makes a statement. Paul says in, in, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Now concerning these things, sacrificed idols, we know that we, are all, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But listen, if anyone loves God, he's known by them. The issue is the heart. It's intimacy. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist from Him. For Him. We exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy. There's one God, one Lord, we exist for Him. We exist for His glory. We exist to make His name known, make His name great throughout the whole world. It's the same thing. And, and it's interesting here. Paul inserts, he does this little subtle thing, but it's huge. He inserts Christ's name here after Lord. He's saying Jesus is Lord of all. And, and here's the point that Paul makes. Here's the huge theological truth Paul makes. What the Old Testament said about God may now be said about Christ. That's what Paul is saying. What the Old Testament said about God and loyalty and all that, he's saying, you know what? Today you be loyal to Christ. It's all bound up in Christ. God's character, His nature, all that, bound up in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. It's all about Christ. 
And, and I hope we grasp that. Christ is the one today to whom we owe our undivided, unqualified allegiance. Why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because He's our intermediary. And not to, be, not to be mean or anything, we don't need anybody else to mediate between us and God. I don't need Mary. I don't need the saints. I have Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom we are to make much known. He is the one through whom all blessings flow. He is the one through whom which God has lavished on us love and blessings. It's Him. And the reality, just like Israel, they knew they shouldn't have been chosen. The reality, what Paul is saying is this. We are not blessed because of what we are in ourselves, but because of what we are in Christ. It's not about Chris. It's about Christ. I'm blessed because of who I am in Christ. And you, you want to, if you want to, you say, Chris, prove that. Go read Ephesians 1, verse three, four, three, verses 3 through 14. Paul said it better than I could. And the proper response to Christ is what? It's love. If we love Him, John 14, 15 says, if we love Him, we will what? Obey Him. Obey Him. That's our human disposition toward God. It's not emotion. It's not talk. It's action. Never to be taken for granted. And this is what it boils down to for us in verses 1 through 9. This is what it boils down to. Bottom line, a true walk with God is rooted in the heart, but extends to all areas of life. It is rooted in the heart, but it extends to all areas of life. Because in our day, I, hear me, I, fa- I battle with this too. There are two temptations that we face with regards to our commitment to Christ. The first one is to treat our walk with God as a private matter. Oh, that's between me and God. Between, no, it is not. It's a very public matter. Or, the second thing is not, not to treat it as a private matter, it's between me and God, but to make it about external performance. That God is only loyal to me as long as I do certain things. Don't go to that extreme either. God is loyal because that's His character. And He's a covenant keeper. But He does demand, he does demand our response. And our life is to be about worshiping God. Why? Out of a glad joy and love for what He's done for us. Secondly, so it's not only uh, uh, rooted in love and extends to all areas. How we lead our family and organize our home tells the world what we believe about the Lord no matter what we say. How we lead our family and organize our home tells the world about who God is no matter what we say. The home is the primary discipleship maker. It was designed that way by God. And our homes, when somebody comes into our home, it ought to declare very clearly to whom our allegiance lies, where our hearts lie. And here's the point. Why why all over the doorposts? Why all these things? It was for accountability. It wasn't for show. It was to teach. And it was for accountability. It was a reminder. When you leave, I'm reminded, I represent God in all things. Okay, got that. When you come home, even when I'm at home by myself, I represent God in all things. It was a constant reminder. Why? Because the world wants to pull us away. It, It wasn't a legalistic thing here. 
Moses was just saying, write these things everywhere so that your kids will learn them, they'll know them, they'll live by them, and you'll be reminded by them. Why? Because the home exists to make followers of Christ. Not good athletes, not straight-A students, not well-mannered kids so mom and dad look like parental geniuses. This just in, we know you're not. It exists to make disciples of the home, of, of the Lord, rather, in the home. You know, my kids can, you, if you catch my kids behaving for five minutes and come to the conclusion that we're great parents, you've been duped. I'm just telling you, by them and by us. They're great kids. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. But my job is, my job is to, that, to put the Word of God in them, that the Word of God will transform them, that their fear of the Lord will regulate their life, not the fear of pleasing mom and dad. We tell our kids all the time, you know why I want you to get good grades? It's not for the good grades. I, want, I don't care about the grades. I care about you doing the best you can. If you do the best you can and you give 100% and all you can get is a C, God is more glorified by a kid who does 100% and gets a C than he is by a slacker who gets an A. And I was that slacker in high school that could, that could get an A without trying. I, couldn't, I, didn't, I tried and it drove my mom nuts. God's not glorified in that. He's glorified in, 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 a, in a heart. And, and, and we exist to make disciples in our home. But not only that, thirdly, biblical love goes way beyond our emotions and is rooted in a covenant commitment demonstrated by actions. It is a covenant commitment demonstrated by actions. God's love for us was demonstrated in actions and in loyalty. Guess what? We need to respond in kind. Actions, loyalty. And Moses is teaching them love is, a, is an action. It is, a, it is an act of the will. It is not an emotion. It's an action. It is a choice. It's not because I feel like it. It's because I know it's right. And I choose to do it. So that's what Moses is saying in verses 1 through 9. It's a heart issue. And real quickly, I'm going to do this. I'm, think, I'm in my mind this whole time I've been thinking about, should I just stop here and let's get through this. Secondly, our tendency, here's the second thing, and this is in the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, is this truth. Our tendency is to be pulled away from our devotion and our allegiance to the Lord. Our tendency is to be pulled away. That is why Moses goes to great extremes in the home. Why? Because our tendency is to leave. Our tendency is to wander. And that's exactly what he says very quickly. He says, look, when you come into this land and you see the Lord lavished and how he's lavished all this stuff upon you, and look, and are satisfied. When you come in here and you're satisfied, guess what's going to happen? Watch for yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're going to start taking credit for things that you had nothing to do with. You're going to enter in that land. You know what you're going to do? You're going to let your guard down. You're going to enter into that land. And pretty soon you're going to think, you know what? Why is it so important? You can see it in chapter 7. Why is it so important that we get rid of all the idols? Why is it so important that we get rid of all the people who in this land that don't love the Lord with all their heart? Why? Because you're going to follow them. 
you're going to end up following the world. You mingle with the world, you take on the world, you will begin looking for the world. And he says, be careful. You can go all the way to Deuteronomy at the end, near the end, verse 31, chapter 31, verse 16. He says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I made with them. God's saying, I know your heart. And if you do not get rid of the things of the world, you will love the things of the world and follow the Lord. And in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 23, a mere two generations after this, they've completely turned away. Within two generations, they had turned their backs. Why? Because they love, their tendency is to be pulled away. Tendency is to be pulled away. The tendency of a fire is to go out. Leave a fire unmanned, it will go out. And he's saying, you, 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 play, you play it safe, you act like you deserve this, I promise you, you're going to leave. And he's saying, look, if you're not careful, you will turn away from your allegiance to the Lord, and instead you will worship other gods, and you will worship yourself. And he's warning them. And here's three dangers Three dangers he warns them of in chapters 6 and 7. The first danger, and you see this in Israel's history, struggle often leads us to question God and His goodness. What did they say time and time again when they were wandering in the desert? Wouldn't it be better to be back in Egypt? Oh, God has brought us out here to kill us. He's brought us out here to be so mean to us. That wasn't true. But struggle... Struggle, when we struggle, that oftentimes leads us to question God and His goodness. But not only that, specifically to Israel, where they're headed is this. Prosperity often leads us to forget God and take, care, take credit for things we didn't do. Prosperity is just as much an evil than struggle. We turn away from God. We forget Him. That's what Moses is saying here. Hey, when you're satisfied, when you're filled, when you're in the land, whoo, man, we have arrived. Don't forget the Lord. And thirdly, what he's saying in chapter 7, when he talks about, he says, you shall utterly destroy them, verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Listen, this is why. For they, verse 4, chapter 7, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You know what Satan wants to do through the world? To turn you and your wife and your kids and your hearts away from serving the Lord and serving Him and serving the things of the world. That we would worship the gift instead of the giver. And instead of praising God, our tendency is to question God and to provoke God. And instead of impacting the world, our, our tendency is to become like the world. And Moses gives them in, chapter, in verses 13 through 19 of chapter 6 some, some preventative measures that they're to teach. And he says the first thing is this, fear the Lord. You shall, verse 13, fear only the Lord your God. In the New Testament, you see the same thing. Do not fear man who can destroy your body. You fear God who can destroy both body and soul. Fear the Lord only. It was a reverence. It was an awe. Secondly, he says, worship Him only. Make sure you worship Him only. 
Hebrews 12, if we had time, we'd go there, says the same thing. Lastly, serve Him only. Be careful, serve Him only. And why? Because He is a jealous God, He says. Jealous, and when we think of jealousy, this is not, oh man, I so need them. It's the kind of jealousy that would erupt if somebody came into your house and was trying to steal your wife, men. Would you just sit there and watch? I hope not. You'd go after that guy. Somebody comes in and trying to harm my wife or my kids. I know they're not going to be intimidated by this frame, but I'm going to die trying. And, and even worse yet, what if your spouse wanted to be pursued? See, that's a, more, that's a more relevant picture of Israel and God. Not only did the world pursue them, Israel was okay with the world pursuing them. That's a whole different picture. And, and we have to understand, if we come to chapter 7 without understanding how awesome God is, we will wonder why. God is that awesome that any other things in our lives that, div that divert our attention and our worship and our loyalty from Him will not be tolerated. Why? Because He's that awesome and those things are that dangerous. That dangerous. And you can go to 2 Corinthians 6, 14. He says, do not be yoked. What business? Do not be unequally yoked. What business to light and darkness? Christian, you got no business linking yourself up with non-believers. James 4, 4. You know what he says there? He says, love and fellowship with the world is hostility towards God. Same thing. He's a jealous God. He's not going to stand by and let us fool around with things that are kill us no less than we would with our kids. And these were safeguards. This word of God is a safeguard. It's a safeguard. In Israel's lives, again, very key, Israel's lives were not to be driven by a system of rules, but by a knowledge of God, of Yahweh. It all went back to what God had done for them. It all went back to gratitude and gratefulness for what God had done for them. And so you say, why the law? Real quick, why the law? Look at, six, look at 625. Why the law? You say, well, why, do you, why the law? What's the deal? It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as He commands us to do. It will be righteousness for us. Listen. If they obeyed the law, if they could have followed the law, righteousness would have been credited to them. And in, in His mercy, God rescued Israel and He revealed to them the appropriate response to grace. And if they responded appropriately, it would have been righteousness. But guess what? I, I want us to understand that they didn't respond correctly. And I want us to understand something before we leave about the connection. I hope it sets us free between law and grace. And I hear it all the time. We're not under law, but our grace. We're not under law, but grace. And the law no longer is in effect. And don't be legalistic and all this stuff. You don't understand law and grace. There's two extremes when we try to balance law and grace. And we see them here. Two extremes, and they're on your handout. Number one is we view our obedience as the basis of our relationship to the Lord. We, we, we view our obedience, and that's earned righteousness. We think we can earn our righteousness. There, nothing in the Bible allows this conclusion to come. You cannot earn your righteousness. We are saved by grace alone. 
God knew that they would not measure up, and in the law, He built in sacrifices to take care of their sin. He knew they would fall. And God chose Israel by grace alone. It was not earned. No merit. 7.6 tells us that. We cannot earn our righteousness. So don't look at obedience as trying to merit God's favor or earn, merit, earn God's favor. But secondly, we think we can enjoy God's a relationship with God without obeying Him because we're under grace. And that is a wrong conclusion. We think we can live however we want and be saved. That obedience doesn't matter. That's not what the Bible says at all. Not at all. And it was interesting. To Walid and Sasha, who we spent last week with, that was their perception of grace by how Christians live. That was their perception. Instead, the Bible says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you understand my grace, you'll follow me. And, and Scripture, what Moses is saying is that if somebody could obey the law completely, it would be credited as righteousness. But guess what? They can't. Scripture is clear and consistent that no one can perform works of righteousness sufficient to merit salvation on their own. That's what Moses is saying. If you could obey this, you'd get credited righteousness. But you won't. You need somebody to do it for you. Israel, you need somebody to do the law for you. New Testament believer, you need somebody to do the law for you. And God, in His great mercy, gave us His Son who, did, who perfected the law, who fulfilled the law. Checkmark. Law fulfilled. Completely obeyed. And that's the beauty. Within the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that God approves of us. Why? Because He approves of Christ. And through our faith in Christ, everything that Christ accomplished has been credited to us. It has been credited to us. That's salvation. If we look to the law as a means of salvation, you know what you get? Death. You get death. Because you can't do it. But if you look to the law as a guide for somebody who is already saved, it will yield life. If I, if, I, if I look to this word to obey it out of a love and a devotion for the Lord, life. If I come to this and say, I've got to do this to get God happy, I've got to do this, death. I've got to do this to be saved, death. But if I say, God, you have saved me through the blood of Jesus Christ, then I gladly and joyfully give my life to you. And this is how you've told me to live for you. There's life, John 10, 10, and abundant life. I mean, our obedience itself is an act of faith. We obey because we're saved, not to be saved. Because we're saved. Obedience comes out of a fruit of the relationship with Christ. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. He was perfect righteous, and He has credited that righteousness to us, righteousness to us when we believe Him. That is why Paul could say in Galatians 3.24, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. We needed Christ. That's exactly what God provided. We needed somebody to perform the law perfectly for us, and that is exactly what He provided. And for that reason and so much more, we worship Christ. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Salvation has been offered and is, and is given alone through Christ. We can be reconciled to God only by Christ. 
And the response is a demonstration, is a life that demonstrates grace, that demonstrates all that we've been given.